everyone, and welcome to another week's episode of If That Makes Sense with Lainey and Christina. Thank you so much for joining us for another week. The support for these episodes has been so great, and we've so appreciated your feedback. Um, We apologize for the week's hiatus. We've had some technical difficulties that we needed to overcome, but we are on the right track. Uh, So we really hope that you enjoy this week's episode and that you're staying safe and hopefully enjoying the start to this holiday season um, as best as we all can. So stay safe. Enjoy this week's episode. Thank you for coming back with us for another week. And without further ado, let's get into it. And this week is a very special week. We have our first guest of the show. So I want to welcome my lifelong family friend, Anne. She has her, she has received her MDiv degree from Alliance Theological Seminary. She's done missions work all over the world. She did, I remember, an 11-month tour of 11 countries going and doing missions work. Um, And she currently is a chaplain resident at a New York City hospital where she spends every day helping people who are struggling with chronic illnesses and the thoughts of death. So welcome, Anne. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, I know I kind of just gave you a little bit of a flex, but (laughs) but yeah, like tell us about yourself and your experience. Um, so my faith is a huge part of who I am. Um, it's, I would say it's the, the thickest lens through which I see the world. Um, and yeah, I think that's helped me like guide me through my life. And the goal always is to be able to respect the lenses around me, right? It's, I'm never going to really be able to fully take it off and be able to look at the world through other people's eyes, but I can still listen to their stories to the best of my ability with respect and compassion. Um, And that's something that I continue to learn every single day. Um, And that, and stories are our stories and just stories in general are among some of the most powerful things on the planet. Um, They are what help propel us forward. Um, Something really big about me is the fact that I actually have a lot of tension with being called a Christian. It has such a, there's such a like icky connotation with that word within my own being right now. Um, It might have to do with who is recently in office. It might have to do with the fact that so many, um, so many uh, Christians have done things in the distant past recent past that I'm just like, oh, so I do my best to follow Jesus. That is so inspiring. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think there's so much to dissect with everything that you just said, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation um, with you today. So thank you again for being here. Um, The first thing that we kind of thought to talk about tonight was in, in a similar vein as to what you just said, you know, we are women. Um, I myself, I'm a Catholic woman. Um, Lainey, I don't know if you want to share your. <laughs> we got a Christian, a Catholic, and a Jew here. So <laughs> this is pretty interesting. Yes, representation at its finest. Um, so I guess this is kind of a, a question for the both of you, and I will also um, put my two cents in as well. How do you think your role as a woman in your faith? 
has not only shaped your faith experience, but how has your, your position as a woman helped guide your life through religion? And how do you think that you can go forward in your life, making sure that your role as a woman um, is one of equality and justice in your um, religious background? Okay, that was a very, that was a very big question, but I guess what I'm trying to do is just open up the door to gender roles in religion and your experience with that. Um, so in my experience, I grew up in a church where it was not weird for me to see women in leadership. Um, a huge part of our family folklore is the fact that my grandmother and great aunt um, were shamed in front of their church as little girls for dancing, for learning how to do ballet. Their dad marched up the aisle, grabbed their hands, walked out of the church. Their mom marched right out. They turned, walked down the street, went into the Presbyterian church and we've been Presbyterian ever since. And a huge benefit of that is the fact that I live in a legacy of a family that um, has fought for women and fought for our voices. And that included being in a church that I always saw women in leadership, uh, whether it was up at the pulpit, in the classroom, right? I, I had all these spectacular examples. It never, as a result, it never occurred to me, right? Like in my own little bubble, it never occurred to me that there were other denominations that didn't have this like that equality wasn't a thing. And honestly, I didn't really experience it until I, I dove deeper into the Christian subculture. And uh, it was, there were patriarchal, not patriarchal in a negative sense, but there were definitely male leadership moments and times where it actually was more egalitarian if that makes sense, right? Like they just use the words. Um, but that was their thing. Uh, and everything in me is like, this doesn't make sense. Like you're claiming that you're one thing when in reality. And then there's also been uh, groups where I'm sitting there and I'm like, wow, the women are actually silent. Um, and it was damaging and that was really sad to be a part of. And my seminary experience was really hard because there was a lot of unnecessary tension, in my view, unnecessary tension around this topic. Um, and it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking because I'm looking around my seminary and the vast majority of the people in the classrooms were women and the denomination of the seminary doesn't ordain women, which means that they are not technically allowed to be pastors. The irony is that so many of the churches disagree with this, that they have female pastors. Like they break the rule and they're like, nah, she's real smart. She's real qualified, bring her in, right? They don't need to know. Like, And I'm sitting there and I'm like, what in the world? Like, uh, so it's frustrating, right? There's, there's a lot to it. I think 
I think even beyond just women in leadership, because I went to a temple where we had a female rabbi. So I thought that was really cool. But I think the thing that really gets me about feminism and religion is that you know, at the, at the core of a lot of these monotheistic religions, and I don't even want to, you know, get into polytheistic religions because personally, I don't, you know, I, I don't know much about that lens. However, I think it's like fair to say that at the, at the core of, a, of our three religious views is there is a lot of sexism there rooted in the ideas. I mean, if you think about it, Adam and Eve and Eve was creative out of Adam's rib. It's all the center of that religious perspective starts with a woman being made to exist for a man. And that I think is reflected in a lot of religious upbringings. And I think that it goes beyond just the ideas of leadership. It's the same thing as, you know, with this new election. We now have Kamala Harris, our first woman vice president, the highest place of power that a woman has ever gotten. However, that doesn't mean that sexism is eradicated just because there's leadership that denies that or not denies it, but, you know, goes, it, it is the exception to that rule. So I think it's the same thing in religion is we see these sexist connotations and these things ingrained into our, into our religious institutions that can be really problematic. I think, Christina, what are some of the gender roles? I know you talked about, I, I, you and I have talked recently about this, but like, what are some of the gender roles um, in church that you felt? Well, you know, I gotta be honest with you. I, I was fortunate, like Anne, to, I go to a church that is very um, inclusive. Uh, the, the catchphrase of my church is all are welcome here which I hate to say that that's sort of unusual with my um, my denomination, but unfortunately we do see a lot of leadership in the Catholic church that are not as sort of progressive and inclusive of, you know, people from all different, you know, sexual orientations and places and, you know, all that sort of thing. That's kind of the opposite of what one might think about when they think about Catholicism sometimes, which is really unfortunate, but, I see it kind of in more subtle ways. I mean, of course, you have the idea that, you know, females can't become priests and, you know, they're confined to the nunnery and all that stuff. And that's a huge debate right now in the Catholic Church as to whether or not that's right or that's wrong. You know, we, in order to see real change in the Catholic Church, people are kind of looking to the Pope to provide that leadership example. And this Pope has been more progressive than others in the past, but I think that that is kind of the center of the conversation is like, what is the Pope doing? What is the Pope saying? What is he thinking? So for me, the way that I've seen sexism play itself out in my faith, a lot of times, you know, I've, I've visited churches, you know, I have family in other states and I have visited their churches. And one of the things I see is that it seems like women in the church community are oftentimes expected to kind of play this, you know, soft-spoken, um, kind of like plain Jane role. And men are, you know, are, you know, growing up and like talking politics and baseball. And then the women are there, you know, oh, I like your shoes. Like, I like your shoes, sure. But I also have, you know, <laughs> I have things to say beyond the shoes that would be nice if that was more ingrained in my church culture. 
that is kind of a very um, internalized example of what I'm talking about. It's, it's not something that I can kind of put my finger on. Like I can't put my finger on something that someone has said that has been, you know, I don't want to say sexist, but sexist. It's just kind of the culture. Like the women are very um, simple and plain and meek and mild and men are, are very much the opposite of that. I don't know if you've experienced that at all and you're nodding your head. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, I've, I've been among it and where the, the cultural expectation is for women to be very service oriented right? Like women are the ones who, right, put together potlucks. If there's anybody who's had a baby recently in the church, they're the ones who are like, we have to organize a meal train, right? Like they're in, in everything in me is like, man, the church would fall apart, like real talk. It would just come crumbling down. But there's definitely this like, oh, but we really want a man as treasurer. And it's mm -hmm. like, no, there's a woman who's an accountant and she volunteered. <laughs> she's crazy enough to pay, play with numbers after she's done playing with numbers. She's, she, we're voting, we're voting and she's in. Um, and it's, it's been really hard to continuously find churches when I, I move quite a bit, but to find churches that meet, right? Like the everybody's welcome, everybody's given an opportunity to shine with their gifts and abilities. Um, and that's really hard. And it is like, but there's definitely those roles. Um, I heard an interesting argument uh, against egalitarianism, which is the idea that like men and women are equal within a marriage and within leadership, right? As opposed to complementarian, which is like the man is the head. And both, right, like both can be unhealthy and both can be healthy, right? There's healthy versions of both and there's unhealthy versions of both. And anyway, I was talking with somebody who's complementarian. He's like, well, of course, men and women can't be equal because women have the incredible ability to create life. He's like, I would never be able to create life within my body. And that gives women an, a huge advantage. And he's like, so in order to even make it equal, right, the man has to be the head. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm pretty sure that just makes it equal. Like, I'm over, I'm like, that's a, kind of a garbage argument, but uh, okay. I think, I think that argument is very flawed. <laughs> and I think if anything, that would just mean that we should live in a matriarchy instead of a patriarchy, um, which we should. Women should rule the world as you know, Beyonce say, says we run the world. Um, <laughs> but getting back to, you know, I think these interesting, unique dynamics, I see it a lot. I know that you guys have both spoke, talked about it from a Christian and Catholic perspective, but, you know, we see it a lot in Judaism. I was very fortunate, you know, to grow up in reform Judaism, which was very laid back. It was, you know, a bunch of us singing songs and then you know, having bagel breaks. We actually had that where they would bring in bagels every week and we would go on <laughs> bagel break. <laughs> it was it was a real thing. And, you know, just talking about how it's it's about being a good person. But there was, you know, this 
this other side of Judaism that I would see at times. And I saw it a lot in college and I'm, you know, I'm not judging anybody who chooses that path or chooses that life, but I find myself conflicted with that, with these antiquated notions in super orthodox communities that, you know, force women to dress head to toe and show no skin that, you know, talk about never touching somebody until you're married. Um, and I know that a lot of people choose to take that vow to in the Jewish community to not touch a person of the opposite sex and only, you know, have your first touch physical, like, you know, holding hands, high five, anything, be with the person that you marry and only be with that person. And I remember once I was in a room and it was a, uh, it was on like a Shabbat day. I went to, you know, visit some friends and we were in a room and they were having lunch, Shabbat lunch. And, Uh, It was everybody who kind of followed that practice. And the main thing that I felt was that it was the woman's obligation to stay out of the man's way. And it made me as a woman feel like I was an obstacle for men to trip over. So I felt like I had to make myself smaller and scrunch into corners so that men wouldn't accidentally touch me and break their vows. And that is, I think, the really problematic assumptions of things of situations like that. I think it's great if you want to take that vow, do what you'd like with your own body, make your own choices. But I think that the power dynamics of these antiquated notions of religion create that sort of conception of it, of women are obstacles for men to trip over. And women are obstacles for men to be drawn in sexually to and have to try and fight against. And that is such a, a troubling way to look at it that really only values women for their sexuality. And it gets back to that whole thing of, you know, Eve was created out of Adam's rib. She was created for Adam, to serve Adam. Women were created in some way to be in relation to men and not exist as their own human beings and bodies. That is so insightful. I, you know, looking from the outside in, I've always kind of imagined the Jewish faith as, as again, I've, I've never even been to temple before. So I'm kind of coming at this from a blind perspective. I've always imagined the Jewish faith as sort of being more progressive in a sense than, than in comparison to a lot of the things that I hear about, you know, my own faith and, you know, the, the Catholic leadership. So that's really, really interesting. I had never realized that there were so many, um, you know, intrinsic practices like what you just described that, that exists. That's really, really insightful. Yeah. There's actually a lot of different types of Judaism. So I was reform, which is one of the more progressive ones. There's reconstructionists, which is the most progressive type of Judaism, but reform Jews are pretty calm. They're fairly common. It's, it's just kind of, we get down to the core of like, be a good person, believe in one God. Um, and you know, celebrate Hanukkah kind of thing. (laughs) I mean, when you get into these intense Orthodox communities, and I know that there's similar dynamics within Christian religions and, you know, it's not every, you know, there are some people who are, you know, Christmas Christians or like, what do they call them? Like commercial Christians where they're like, oh, we celebrate Christmas and like Easter, but it's the same thing with Judaism is you have these dynamics and there, there definitely is, you know, there are a lot of progressive Jews. I'm obviously one of it's been fascinating to learn from them and learn with them and to see and see like to 
see those similarities, right? There are, I, I mean, I have beloved friends of mine who they did not kiss until their wedding day. And everything, I mean, like I'm seeing their very similar perspective, Laney, of like, okay, this is your, that's your body. That's your choice. Internally, I'm thinking, what if there's nothing there? I know. What if they're a bad kisser? This is a, this is a side topic. Can you teach someone to be a good kisser? Yes, you definitely can. They've done that. You can, because people mimic each other. So it just takes time. You just have to be patient. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I, I don't know about that. Everything internally for me was like, what if it's like kissing your brother? You know what I mean? Like, what if you get to that point and you're like, I thought there was chemistry and there isn't. And you, you've said the vows, you've said the vows, the vows are said, the cake is in the other room. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And they had, they have a baby, so something worked out, but (laughs) I mean, it, it's one of those things where I'm like, and that's, it's a huge, right. There's, there's Christians that go to colleges, Christian colleges. I didn't know this until four years ago. There are Christian colleges where men walk on one side of the street and women walk on the other. Wow. Yeah. I right Like the, there's a Christian, very well-known Christian college in the town next to the one that Lainey and I grew up in. Um, they do that there? No, not there. Oh. <laughs> that college, they have like women's dorms and men's dorms and everything in me is like, that may, that's fine. That's, well, that college, you have to like take a vow to not watch porn for the time that you're there. Like it's, yeah. it's very intense. It's very intense. And so this other school that I'm speaking about takes that to another level, right? Like you're not walking on the same side of the street. You don't watch anything over PG rating you right like there's right like they can watch hocus pocus and that's pretty much maybe not actually probably not they swear that shows witchcraft you guys right so they can't but it's i mean there's there's so much to it and we're touching we're getting close very close to touching on purity culture which is something i i personally was never really all that exposed to because my my church was like you know, just don't have sex until you're married. So, and before we get into purity culture, I just want to ask, you know, for people out there who are feeling like us and coming from somebody who, you know, is so well-versed in this stuff, how you, you are, I mean, you have degrees in this, you work in this, you've devoted your life to this institution. How do you, you know, and I, I'm not trying to be offensive when I say this, how do you grapple with the fact that you know, you, you devote your life and you, you have so much passion for this when there are these, you know, dark underpinnings of the institution. How, how do you, you know, still have faith? How do you have this good relationship with religion, whatever it may be? So that's a fantastic question. Um, and thank you for asking, because it's really affirming. And I apologize because the answer might come across as really preachy and, evangelically it's a word um as of now full-blown disclaimer i'm at no point trying to convert anybody or anything this is my perspective and point of view the one thing 
that I find so much comfort in. And I mean, like, this is, this is the, the granite that I stand on. This is foundation is that Jesus wasn't that way. Jesus was not patriarchal. Jesus was not diminishing of women. He hung out with women, the ones who were disregarded by culture, the ones who were quite literally on the fringes for a variety of reasons. Um, And he also just chilled with them, right? Like he just straight up, like some of his besties were people without testes. Right, like the, the men today and the men for centuries across religions have been like, oh, women. And the deity that I find so much comfort in designed women, made women, knows women's bodies through and through, finds deep beauty and glory in them, calls us made in their image. And I say their, T, capital T-H-E-I-R, right and yeah it's that to me like in them when they walked among us as a single man hung out with women super countercultural then super countercultural now and I'm like yeah that's yeah so you can go ahead and say that I can't get ordained you can go ahead and say all these things but the one that I believe in says otherwise and they get the final word so the question remains then also thank you for literally every word that just came out of your mouth um (laughs) um, the question remains then you know if we do you know we stay practicing our religions and you you know you devoted your entire life as Lainey said to this this institution the question remains then how do we go about making change to the institution do we is it possible how can how in your in your view do you think we can do that I think it's totally possible. I think it is absolutely possible. Um, I think it takes a tremendous amount of temerity. I think it takes a solid sense of like, this is what I am meant to do. There's a spectacular book uh, written by women pastors about this um, and how they've overcome And the fact that it took them getting a doctorate when uh, the male pastor has a bachelor's or an associate's and he's the head of the church. She's like, I have a doctorate. I've been speaking. I'm published. I'm all this, right? So that at this point, I'm sitting with an MDiv and I feel like I have imposter syndrome when somebody calls me an expert because I'm like, no, no, no. The women who've come before me had to put in all this time and effort and energy. Um, I think it just takes so much determination, but it can be done. And I think it requires having people in your life who will continue to encourage you. I think it requires empowerment, honestly, and something that I've experienced and something that I've seen is that oftentimes women are our own worst enemies in the church right? Like, well, you know, your rightful place. And it's like, (laughs) following God. (laughs) You're like, so long as your husband is representing God. And I'm like, I'm single. 
<laughs> this this finger this finger is naked. And right, so what does that mean? And they're like, oh, well, you can't lead until you have a husband. And I'm like, this isn't the church for me. I'm gonna go. And right, finding a denomination that trusts and respects you and is it minimal grappling with the question. I wouldn't, um, but yeah, it's, it's an uphill battle. Something that I do deeply respect Christina, about your religion is the fact that I feel like it takes a look at mine as Protestantism and is like, give it 200 years and we'll come back to the idea, <laughs> right? Like, and yeah. so like, they're like, that looks like a fad. We'll come back to this three popes from now and we'll talk about it, right? And it, there's, there's a beauty in that. There really is because there's not giving into fads, but there's also a lot of tension, which you mentioned as well. And I have the, I have the honor where I work. I get the honor of working with all three of the Abrahamic faiths and heads of them. I get to work with a Hindu priest. I get to work with some polytheists and it's just like everything inside of me is like, yes. Um, I just felt like, you know, talking about this this issue and, you know, finding places that are having these issues and things that we want to change is a really good transition point to talking about purity culture. So I personally have, you know, obviously I didn't grow up in the evangelical purity culture era. However, uh, I have found this to be something that is very, very troubling in our society. And it's not something that is just religious based. It's also backed by government. One thing that I think a lot of people don't know is that from the Reagan administration until Obama and even into Obama, the government funded abstinence only education. They have spent over $2 billion in abstinence only education. And that's, uh, you know, just in the past however many years. That's not even just to say what was happening before that. But the, these, these are funds that are being funneled into public school systems to teach every child abstinence-only education. Can I just, can I just, before we dive into this, and, and I love that you mentioned that, that, um, that statistic because that's like mind-boggling. But before we jump into this conversation, I think what we should probably do is kind of provide a working definition for what we're talking about when we talk about purity culture. Is purity culture the way that we're going to talk about it? Is it the idea of virginity? Is that purity culture? Purity culture goes beyond virginity. Purity culture is about, in a sense, it is it intersects with race a lot, okay? It's the intersection of race, religion, gender, all of these things compiled together to create the idea of keeping this pure white innocence. And the preservation of that a lot comes from, you know, preserving girls' sexuality. This happened a lot when we saw, you know, in colonialism and in America with, you know, discrimination, racial discrimination, and the idea of keeping the tradition of a white race. However, you know, it, it goes towards the implication of a woman's sexuality and keeping her pure and preserved until marriage because she will be marrying a white male. Along with this, you have the ideas of gift giving. It intersects with a lot of different theories, but the idea that a woman is a gift, if she is used, 
if she is, you know, a dirty cookie, a broken box, whatever it is, um, she's less worthy. She's worth less goats. These are all things that play an implication into purity culture. And it comes back to this idea that women are valued and controlled by their sexuality because that is at their core what they are meant for. Rather than empowering women for the fact that they can create life, they are turned into these baby-making machines and that's all that's valued about them. So I think it's a very interesting, very nuanced topic. I've done a lot of research and writing on it. So it's something that I'm very passionate about. Obviously not passionate about keeping purity culture, um, but it's something that is very, very problematic and troubling. And the big problem with purity culture and abstinence only education is that you have, you know, these, these stories, these conceptions and perceptions going in to abstinence only education that are so troubling. So for example, um, there are stories of educators in, you know, normal high school classes and they will take out an Oreo and they'll show it to the class and they'll say, okay, who wants this cookie? Everyone would raise their hands and say, I want that cookie. And then what they do is they pass the cookie around the room, make every person in the room spit on it. Obviously this is pre COVID. And then they say, okay, who wants this cookie now? Obviously nobody wants a cookie. They tell kids, they have told kids that if you do this, if you have sex, you become worthless. You are that cookie. And every time you give somebody that cookie and they spit on it, this is what you are giving to your future husband. So the ideas of abstinence only education is that it tells women that if you have sex before marriage, you as a gift are breaking, are being ruined, are being spoiled for the gift you will give your husband one day. And that at its core is why it's so problematic. And it goes, it's expanding beyond just evangelical purity culture and coming into governance. So the spectacular background, I can speak a little bit more to the background of the evangelical, if I may, right? Absolutely. That's a spectacular background on it. Thank you so much for that. Um, my understanding is limited in to add to that, it's also the fact that there's so much shame and fear behind it. It's entirely backed and propagated by fear and shame, fear and shame, fear and shame. You should be ashamed of your sexuality. You should be ashamed of having any sexual urges. You should fear sex, like be deeply afraid of it because, right, as Lainey mentioned earlier, right, you you won't be able to control these urges. And as women, right, like you should, you know, wear your shirts up around your neck and right, like you're stumbling, the phrase of being a stumbling block, which was actually taken from the New Testament of the Bible out of context, like, right? Like Jesus was called a stumbling block. So that's not a bad thing. So when you, right? Like it's a, what's called a floating signifier, right? You take it and you reappropriate this phrase to mean something bad. Ladies, you don't want to be a stumbling block. So don't wear short shorts, right? But we don't, you don't hear that same message towards 
a good looking guy walking down the street without a shirt on. Like, because, you know, as women, we don't, we don't have sexual thoughts. And so purity culture essentially came about as a result of, right, the sexual revolution and very well-intentioned was like, we're going to push back. Um, but because it was propagated and I'm probably misusing that word, but perpetuated, better word, through shame and fear, right? It resulted in no good things, right? Um, I'll never forget the stark contrast between the sex education that I received at my private Christian school growing up and then when I went to public school, right? Like the, there were, it was not education. It was at my private Christian school. And all of a sudden I'm seeing full on like anatomically correct everything, right? And that moment where, right? Like fifth grade me is terrified, like, oh my gosh, beamed. Men can never know that you have a period all these things and don't worry about what's inside of you. It's not like, don't worry about it to here's what everything is. And I'm in class with both men and women, men and women, boys and girls, we're in the eighth grade. Um, and here's everything. And I'm like, oh, that's inside of me. And that looks like it's from Star Trek, right? Like nobody told me my insides look so cool. Anna and I went to the same high school at different times, but, um, I mean, I had a problem with the, uh, sex education that I received at my high school, because I'm sure it was steps up from private, you know, religious education. However, they still gave the assumptions of, you know, being a prude is more important. I will never forget it. And my, like, this is the one thing that has stuck in my head from sex education is my teacher stood in the front of the class and he said, I would have, I would rather have my daughter be called a prude every day of her life than be called a slut once. And at the time it doesn't seem like that bad of a thing. And he was trying to get to the point of like, your reputation's important. But at the end of that, when you really think about that idea, it gets back to the core of being a prude is better than having any sort of sexual awakening. I am usually the person to disagree with what we're talking about. Not fully disagree, but just kind of subtly. And I'm going to subtly disagree now um, because every episode needs a villain and that person is me. You are not the Um, villain. You are are not the villain. We are all here talking about our own experiences. And obviously ours are different. All three of us have gone through very different walks of life, but you are not the villain, Christina. Tell us how you're feeling. Um, yeah. So, okay. I, I understand. I understand why, um, abstinence only education is wrong because, you know, as someone who wants to go into healthcare, that puts people at risk, right? You, if you don't know about sexually transmitted diseases and how to prevent them, you are more at risk for getting them. And, you know, that's a huge health hazard and it's wrong. And, and, um, that I totally agree. I don't think that the government should be promoting sex or excuse me, abstinence only education. I totally agree with that. However, you know, as, as someone who was raised, as I said, you know, in the Catholic faith, and I have a lot of friends who, um, 
are, you know, part of the, you know, wait till marriage crowd. And, you know, I, I won't speak to my own personal experiences because this is a personal sensitive topic and we are on a, po a podcast. Um, <laughs> and, but I will say that, you know, I think that there's something really special about waiting for someone to come into your life who means something to you, who, you know, maybe you'll marry, maybe you won't. I think that there's a novelty to that because, you know, sex is a powerful thing. It's not, it's not a powerful thing for everyone. People handle it in different ways. But um, I think that sex can come with a, an emotional component sometimes for women and for men. Um, and I think that part of the issue that I take with, with purity culture, number one is, is the idea that, you know, only women are emotional about sex wrong that is wrong men get emotional about it too there are men who can um you know have sex and not feel anything and walk away and then there are men who can't do that and i think the same goes for women and you know there's i'm sure there's research about the percentage of women compared to the percentage of men who can have sex and not feel anything and i won't get into numbers right now but so that's one issue i take with it another issue that i take that i take with it that i have experienced with my own life is the idea that women can't talk about their periods. I have been blunt from a very, very young age. I came out of the womb saying exactly what was on my mind. I've always been that way. And so when I was growing up, I was that way. And when, you know, when I was, you know, went through puberty and got my period and all that, I would, I would talk about it. And I, I felt a natural urge to talk about it because it's what's going on with your body. And you know, why shouldn't we be allowed to talk about it? But I did feel this kind of pressure, this kind of shame that, you know, when I got my period, I was somehow different. You know, I was, I was wrong. I was, it, something was wrong with me. Like, like I had been cursed or something and it was out of my control. And so I think that, you know, when I do have kids one day and, you know, if I, you know, ever have that opportunity in my life, that is one thing that I will make a point to talk about openly in my home is the idea that, you know, when you are a woman and you do have this body and it's developing, like we should feel free to talk about it. And because everyone goes through it and it's not a taboo. Now I just, I mean, I talk about it openly with my guy friends and my girlfriends because, you know, who's going to stop me now. But <laughs> I will say when I, when I was going through puberty, it was like this huge taboo, like, oh my God, I got my period. Like, what's going to happen to me? What will become of me in this dismal life? You know what I mean? I don't know if anyone else experienced that, but. No, I think, I think what you're saying is super valid. I want to get back to what you said about sex first, because I think that what you said is really important. And, um, I'm, I obviously am not trying to sit here and promote that like sex means nothing and like everybody should go do it. I think that it is important. I think that the way they teach it is that it's an oppressive tool rather than it being a very special thing. And I think what you said does not at all promote abstinence only education. I think it promotes the fact that it's important. Any sort of physical intimacy is important. And it's something that needs to be thought of as that way, but it isn't something that you should use to value yourself. And I think that that can go for men and women. I think that, you know, but we get into the danger zones when we're talking about, you know, if you have sex with too many guys, your value goes down. And that's the danger of purity culture because it boxes women into that. 
And it's the same thing is that, you know, if you're boxing women into this whole idea of their sexuality and then their reproductive organs are like going crazy once a month and you're like, yeah, but I don't want to hear about that. But tell me everything about your sex life because that's what matters to me. It's just a very funny dynamic that exists. huge part of that is the motivation behind both right so the motivation behind the idea like sex is a beautiful act that has multiple dimensions beyond just being physical and is something that should be taken seriously right is empowering right it's caring it's equal it's not shaming and it's not based in fear. It's putting responsibility on you and your body. And um, whereas the other one is shame and fear, right? Be afraid, be ashamed, be afraid, be ashamed. And it's, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, how do we empower people as opposed to borderline manipulating them into a certain behavior. Um, and I like I just think it starts from a very young age, right? So for me, uh, virgin culture versus purity culture is like, you can say no and have, right, just as much dominion over your body and the ability to say like, this is, this is my body. And I'm choosing to say not happening until I'm married, till I'm in love till right. Um, and to God willing live in a culture where that's accepted fully would be amazing. And if you choose to say yes, that that is a choice Right. And like Lainey, like you're saying, and Christina, like you're saying that it's, it's just, it's a choice that is made from a place fear of, free of pressure. Um, and that would be huge and free of shame. And I can deeply resonate, uh, Christina, with your story in my very well-intentioned, uh, private Christian school. It was our gym teacher and the principal's wife. And they were like, boys can never know about your period. And don't worry, periods aren't blood. And they will never leak through your genes. None of this is accurate. My mom is a nurse. I came home, I told her, and she's like, of course it's blood. <laughs> we, I love my mom so much. And she's like, but you don't, you don't need to be afraid. It's been, she's like, there, you'll learn. <laughs> she's like, but you don't need to be afraid of it. You don't need to be ashamed of it, right? Like it happens. You have two older sisters, it happens. And it's one of those things where it's like, thank, I'm super thankful for my older sisters because I'm sitting there and I'm like, I need to pick up supplies. And my oldest sister looks at me, she's like, you need pencils? <laughs> like, what do you need with supplies? And our middle sister is like, dude, she's talking about pads. She needs pads. You need to go get her pads. She's like, just say that you have your period. God, 
car, right? Like, and then be like, do you want, like, these ones have wings. All it means is that there's more security. These ones don't. All it means is that there's less security and it'll go all over the place. You're getting the ones with wings, right? Like, initiation. Um, but yeah, I think it's something that should be celebrated. I agree. And I was so embarrassed about it as a young girl. I still, to this day, if there is a cute guy like working the counter and I have to buy like tampons or whatever, I, I like cringe to myself. I think, oh my God, like he's going to know like that I like I have a period. Like he's going to know what's it, what will he think? Like, will his mind be blown by the fact that I am a woman and I have my period? Like I can't, I, I, I do it intrinsically now. It's, it's so bad. The best is when you go up with like the pint of Ben and Jerry's and the, and the tampon. Yep. And you look them down. I've, I've really started to embrace it. I'll do that. I'll put them both down. You know, I have like my my half baked and yep. I have my, my box of Tampax and I just look them dead in the eye. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. It's very empowering in a sense. Like, like, this is awesome. It is. You're, You're more welcome. uncomfortable than I am, and I'm the one with cramps right now. <laughs> you break into the pampering at the counter, you like rip it open, you're like <laughs> downing it in your mouth. You're like, PG you water or what? <laughs> okay, so getting back to purity culture a bit. I want to kind of dive into one last idea and one big objection that I have with religion. And I think it comes in with purity culture and virgin culture is that religions often only value same or homos or heterosexual sex as being, you know, losing your virginity. And even when it is heterosexual sex, it's usually only, you know, if a male orgasms, nobody's talking about what's happening with women. Nobody's talking about what's happening with homosexual sex. Nobody's talking about what's happening with any other kind of thing. And so I want to talk about the girls, the gays, and the theys. All right. Like, how do we combat purity culture when there is not a legitimate definition of virginity? How, how do you define any sort of, you know, standards when, when, when doing that just eradicates and devalues any other kind of sex? Right. So basically like if, because only one of those has a hymen. Yeah. Yeah. That's very real. And it's fascinating uh, in seminary. I love, I loved my seminary. It was very educational for multiple reasons. Um, we, in the same building was the school of therapy and counseling. And there was a sex counselor, um, spectacular human. I love this guy. He's just marvelous. And he walked into this room and keep in mind after high school, I eventually went to Indiana University and cut to study with a lot of the kids from the Kinsey Institute. So talking about sex became so normative. Um, and I loved it, right? Fantastic conversations. And so it was 
fascinating to me to be sitting in these classrooms years later with people who I'm like, we're talking about the creator of sex. Like God designed the human body. And I am thrilled for this one professor to walk into the room because he's essentially giving the sex talk to a bunch of pastors and preachers and teachers. And I am just pumped to be in the space. And he starts using anatomically correct terminology. And he is like, we need to talk about the fact that God made the clitoris. And I, me, 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 I lean in, right? I am so excited. I would have leaned in too. <laughs> like, this is great. The amount of men in this classroom, because it's a circle, so you can see everything, who are just like, And everything in me is like, you would have thought he had like slapped a crucifix. I'm sitting there, I'm like, this is great. And he's like, it means that God created sex for pleasure just as much for the woman as for the man. And isn't it a beautiful thing that God made us sexual creatures and i'm sitting there i'm like yes it is <laughs> isn't it great i'm looking around i'm like ah, y'all are about to have some happier marriages <laughs> and i'm sitting there and i'm thinking like ah, i'm not even and you're okay like this is great right just fantastic and i'm looking around at the other women in the room and all of them are doing the deep nod, right? Like, yes, yes. Like one woman has her hand up in the air, just like, yes, yes. And these men, some of the men are like, yeah, right? Like, yeah, that makes sense, yeah. And others, I mean, they went from the very man-spready, right? Like the um, borderline yoga, ankle on cross leg, right? Arms over to like cross to their body language was all like, I'm so demure. I don't know what to make of this. And I'm like, welcome to my world. <laughs> like, yeah. That's amazing. Wow. So it seems like like the common theme of, of what we're all saying here with that amazing story um, is that the, the one of the answers I think lies into talking about it and not being afraid to have these conversations in spaces where traditionally these conversations don't exist, right? So I think that that's definitely when we talk about, you know, how do we change the institution? How do we, you know, see a difference in our you know, religious cultures and our religious backgrounds, I think talking about it is, is a good step. Definitely. Yes, absolutely. And if you want to read more about purity culture, uh, two really incredible books that I just want to give a shout out to, and I think both of you ladies would love is Pure by Linda K. Klein. It's incredible. She goes through stories of women who really lived through 
oppressive evangelical purity culture. And the other one is The Purity Myth by Jessica Valenti. And it is amazing. Um, she goes through a lot of the institutional and political and social problems with purity culture and how it's oppressive. Specifically, she gets really in deep to the abstinence only education. So really incredible stuff. Uh, and Anne, we have loved having you on the show. <laughs> Thank you so much. And you are so incredible. You're so knowledgeable. Your background is just amazing. You do such great work. Thank you so much for spending your night with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah. And Anne, remember what you are saying does make sense. So take the last word. I really want to encourage anybody who's listening. Um, the your body is just something that is made so beautifully and intrinsically worthy of respect and love and care. And I think at the end of the day, when we learn to respect ourselves and we respect one another as having inherent worth that we're going to really see just a dramatic shift. Thank you. Oh my gosh. You have to come on the show again. We have loved having you like, oh my gosh, love, love, loved it. Thank you to everyone who's listening. Um, thank you for joining us in another episode. And again, it's just a reminder that what you are saying does make sense. <laughs>